Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm your host, Bill Arnold. Very much looking forward to today. As always, I get a chance uh, to talk to David Wheaton, my friend from uh, The Christian Worldview, and he is uh, continuing his series today on the book of Genesis and why it's so relevant for today. I'm excited to uh, catch up with David. He's uh, on our studio line right now. David, welcome. Hey, good to be with you today, Bill. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So I'm loving this uh, this series on Genesis, it's been wonderful for me, and I know the listeners have loved it. And as always, I love to uh, kind of do a refresher on what we talked about last time before we move ahead. Well, I'm sure you often have new listeners coming and going, so it's always good to do a little review. So, well, the key point from last time, we went over, we were in about Genesis 27, and this is about, um, you have the progression from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, the, the big patriarchs of, of Israel. And now we're in the story of Isaac, the second one with his wife, Rebecca, and and they have twin sons. And the twin sons are familiar to probably most people listening, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is is the older brother. Uh, He's slightly older by just minutes, like twins are. And Esau is his father Isaac's favorite son, because uh, Esau likes to hunt. He's a man of the outdoors and so forth. So Isaac likes him the best, while Jacob, the younger son, is his mother's favorite, Rebecca's favorite. And Jacob is much more stay-at-home, in the kitchen, that sort of thing. So the sons are very different. There's favoritism in the home, which is a very challenging thing, I'm sure, for the whole family. And then all of a sudden, in the, in the, in the uh, story in Genesis 27, and I say story as in true story, not like a made-up fictional, mythical, mythological, this is actually little people, literal happened. Mm-hmm. Isaac thinks he's going to die. Uh, he's coming, he's in. He's over 100 years old, I believe, at the time. He lived longer back then, but he thinks he's going to die, although he didn't die short after this, but he thinks he's going to die. He's going blind at his age, he's in bed, and he's going to do what typical uh, a father would do during that time, and where they grant or they give their blessing, uh, the majority of their inheritance to their eldest son, their firstborn son. So Isaac's going to give his blessing to Esau. Now you think, well, what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal is God had specifically told, I believe it was Rebecca a couple of chapters ago, no, that the younger son will be the one that gets the blessing. The older shall serve the younger. So really Isaac, late in his life here, is doing something maybe he had forgotten, maybe he just didn't care, maybe he was so focused on his favored boy, Esau, he was doing something in opposition to what God had directly told this family. And so earlier in life, just to back up a little more, Jacob, when they were younger, when the boys were younger, maybe teenagers or somewhere in that range, Jacob had already bartered away Esau's birthright uh, for a bowl of soup. You remember the story? Esau goes out hunting, and he comes back, and he's super hungry, and he tells Jacob, who's in the kitchen, give me some of that soup. And Jacob kind of opportunistically says, oh, sure, I'll give you some soup, but I'll trade it to you for your birthright. Well, Esau didn't see the significance in his 
his birthright at all. He was a, a ungodly, kind of an earthly man, wasn't focused on the spiritual at all. He said, what's, what's the point of the birthright if I'm going to starve to death? So he <laughs> trades away his birthright for a bowl of soup. He's not concerned about it. And now later in life, now it's time to not only get, go from the birthright, but to actually get the blessing itself, what the birthright represented. And Rebecca, their mother, hears uh, Isaac say to Esau, go out hunting, bring me back my favorite wild game, a deer, cook it for me, make it for me, prepare it for me to have a meal so I can bless you. Rebecca hears this, that her favored son, the son that God had told them was the one to be blessed, was not now going to be blessed, and she kind of goes into a panic. And she starts hatching this plan, which is just this unbelievable plan that, Jacob, go and get a couple goats from out back, prepare them. We'll take the goat skin, we'll put it on top of your arms, we'll walk in, we'll prepare it for him while Esau is out hunting, and you're, we're going to deceive your father into blessing you. You're going to act like Esau, and your father's going to bless you instead of your brother Esau. Now, just a crazy plan, but it actually works. I, uh, Isaac's suspicious, but he goes about and he actually puts his blessing on on Jacob instead of Esau. Now, the interesting thing, that's a long way of answering this, Bill. Sorry for running on so long. But it comes about when Esau comes back from hunting and he comes into his father. His father says to him, who are you? And he says, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then in verse 33 of uh, chapter 27, Genesis, then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And it's just this vivid picture of all of a sudden Isaac realizing that he had been going in opposition to God's stated will from the very beginning of these children's life. He should have been blessing the younger Jacob instead of Esau. And all of a sudden Isaac has this realization he's been going the wrong way. And God's sovereignty, God's providence is going to work out despite all these other sinful things that are taking place, the deceptions going on in this story. And that's really the story here is that God's plan will work out no matter what we think we can do about it. That was a, that was a rattled dad, wasn't it? Yes, very rattled. I mean, you could, you could just see it. And he said, yes, and he shall be blessed. It's like, oh, no, e even though I was deceived into this, uh, that's not the way it's going to be. We're not going back on this. God was correct, and I should have been on board from the very beginning. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump ahead now. Let's get into chapters twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Um, right, let's get back to this: the biblical principle of marrying yeah. in the Lord it resurfaces again. Yeah, this is the the really important principle of Scripture that you see all throughout the Bible, but specifically stated in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul gives the command to marry in the Lord. In other words, marry another believer. Don't be unequally yoked in marriage. Don't marry someone who doesn't believe—if you're, if you're a believer in Christ, don't marry someone who's not, because there's an equal yoking. Two are becoming one. This is a fundamental principle of marriage, and we've seen this principle of marrying in the Lord or marrying another person who loves the God of the, the Creator uh, in this story with with Abraham and his wife, Sarah, didn't want Isaac, their son, their one son, to marry someone from the land in which they were living, which was Canaan at the time. There's lots of godlessness and, and false gods and worshiping idols and that kind of—they did, did not want Isaac to marry someone, a, a girl from their land, because they were all not god-worshiping. So they, they send Isaac back 
to the place from where their family came from, which was north in this town called Haran. And the servant goes up there and finds a wife for Isaac, whose name is Rebecca. Now, that happened once. But in the very next generation, we see the exact same thing happening again. Uh, this situation uh, after Jacob and Esau and the stolen blessing and all that the deception playing going on, Rebecca says to Isaac, after this whole thing took place, she said, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. These are the Hittites who are living all around them. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of the Hittites, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So after this whole thing with the birthright and the deception, Rebecca is worried to pieces that not only is is Jacob, you know, going to be murdered potentially by her his his brother uh, Esau because he's obviously so upset that the blessing's been stolen, but she's equally concerned that Jacob is going to marry an ungodly daughter of the land. So the same scenario repeats itself, which should be uh, of of of. Um, of Abraham and Sarah being concerned about who Isaac was going to marry. In other words, they were highly, highly intentional to make sure that their children, their sons in this case, married someone else who was a God-fearing worshiper of God. And the interestingly enough, that's not what Esau had done. Esau had married some girls from the land. He had multiple wives from the land. And this was a grief, it says, uh, to Isaac and Rebekah. So the lesson for us, the relevance is today, if you have children— the the number one thing you are called to do is to ra- to raise your son or daughter in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, lead them to the gospel, help them understand the gospel. You can't force them to be saved, but to preach and help them understand the the way to be right with God. Then after that, the second biggest responsibility is to really help them. You don't need to force them, but help them to understand the importance of marrying in the Lord a fellow believer. That is uh, exactly correct, David. That is such a wonderful re- reminders to everyone listening, if they've uh, got young kids especially, that you want to do exactly that. You want to uh, raise them up in the Lord and then pray that and instruct them and pray that they will uh, meet a godly person that they can uh, spend their life with. And, and this is one thing worth battling over. Of course, you know, not not arranged marriages. I'm not talking about that, or you can't force, you know, who your son or daughter marries, that kind of thing. But this is something that that doesn't want to be left to, well, you know, you can just do whatever you want and we'll work it out. You want to do everything within wisdom and within grace. Let's just put it that way, um, without totally ruining your relationship with a son or daughter. Uh, to really impress upon them the importance of marrying in the Lord, because it's really for God's glory and it's for their good. It's 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 going to be if you don't have that equal yoke in the home, it not only affects the marital relationship, but then an unequal yoke in the in a marriage affects the way children are raised. And there's just examples after this. It's so difficult. Uh, marriage is so difficult. It can be so difficult just as it is, even between people who are equally yoked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to bring in an une- unequal uh, yoking, the spiritual disunity, one's a believer, one's not, that makes it so much harder and is not glorifying to God. And it's uh, really powerful when parents start praying at a very young age for yes. that that reality. And it's it's something that parents, I know, many, many do, and many have prayed for that yeah. relationship. And, and, and you're right. You should pray from it early. And I, I would be willing to bet there are 
maybe even some students today, uh, late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s, who are kind of in that prime marrying time of life and, you know, grew up in a Christian home. They're professing believers in Christ. They may have a boyfriend or girlfriend who isn't a follower of Christ. And I really believe, uh, Bill, that Satan always, because he knows this is such an important relationship in life, marriage, I mean, it's for life. Right. Uh, he knows that's such an intimate, important relationship that he'll do anything to, to try to take down a believer and get him out of fellowship with the Lord. And the primary way he does that, he knows us. He knows what kind of person we'd be attracted to who won't be the right kind of person mm -hmm. for us. So it's really important to be committed to that principle. Such wisdom, David Wheaton. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, I want to uh, learn all about Jacob's ladder. You all remember Jacob had that dream, and a ladder was set up on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. We're going to learn about that. David Wheaton's my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. David Wheaton is my guest. We're back in our series on the book of Genesis and why it's so relevant for today. David, I have a feeling that a lot of people got introduced to Jacob's Ladder first at some county fair or something. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those stories from Scripture that's entered popular culture. Everyone's mm -hmm. heard of Jacob's Ladder. Maybe not many people know what it is, but, you know, you play games with little strings on your hand and make Jacob's Ladder. And, you know, maybe you remember those things back when you were a kid. So it's this this colloquialism that we know about Jacob's Ladder. What is it? Well, this Jacob's Ladder it enters the story right after what we've been talking about with with Jacob being sent now after the whole situation, the dust up, I guess you could call it with Jacob and Esau and Jacob gets the blessing. And now Isaac realizes that he's been going the wrong way. And he totally realizes now that the Jacob, that Jacob should have had the blessing in the first place, but they need to send him away because Esau, his brother is going to murder him or at least has murderous intent. And uh, they want to send him away. And they also want to send him away to find a wife from their own, uh, who a fellow God-worshipping wife. And the only place they know to do that is from the land where they came from, which is Haran. And Rebecca, her brother, Laban, lives in Haran. So then this is a long way away at the time. This is not a, like a short flight back then. This is a long, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a long trek north, uh, outside the land of Canaan, outside the Promised Land. And so, by the way, what's interesting about this, I read this in a, in a footnote today, this is, you remember that Isaac found his wife in Haran. He, Isaac didn't go there, but the servant went there and brought back Rebekah. This is now 97 years later. So the last time Rebekah had been in Haran was 97 years ago. I believe this is correct. And now her son, Jacob, is traveling there, not with a servant, but traveling there to go find a wife from the same family of of his mother. So it's just a little interesting little piece of context there that this, she had been gone a long time from this area. And they, these families, we did, they didn't have Zoom calls back then. They weren't talking to each other. You know, this is a long way away. So the mm -hmm. families weren't in very close contact. So Jacob is heads off, goes north towards Haran. And I'll just read this couple of verses from Genesis chapter 28 uh, in verse 12. He's on this journey. He says, he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, on the ladder. Then behold, the Lord was standing above it, above the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. 
the land on which you lie, still in the promised land, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what is this? This is the, re, the reaffirmation of what God has told his grandfather, Abraham. Remember, there's the, the Abrahamic covenant. You're going to have land. You're going to have many descendants or seed, and there's going to be blessing. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. It's gone from Abraham to God's chosen offspring of Abraham to, the, to Isaac, and now it's going down, not to Esau, but to Jacob. And so God is reestablishing this. So Jacob knows very well he's not some random person. He is the one in whom this Abrahamic covenant will continue, which will lead all the way to God sending his Redeemer through the line of Jacob through this particular line, Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. And so God appears to Jacob in a dream on top of this ladder and reaffirms the blessings of this covenant and I think the intention of this is to really build trust in Jacob or build confidence in Jacob that he is in the center of God's will. And if you think about it, Bill, is there really anything better in life than knowing that you're in the center of God's will? Isn't that really what we should desire most in life? Because if you're in God's will and you're doing God's will, no matter what it is, you're going to be most fulfilled in life, even if it's hard, even if it means doing something that requires, you know, causes persecution or, or difficulty or challenges. Let's say, look, even the Apostle Paul, think about his life, thrown in jail and beaten and everything else. He realized that being in God's will is the most important thing in life. And so this is what God is, is telling Jacob here. You are the next in line of this Abrahamic covenant. You are in my will by doing this. And Jacob responds with just like anyone, any true believer with, with complete awe over encountering God and this, this vow of gratitude that he offers. And this is really how we need to respond to God's goodness in our life, to, to, to be willing to continually serve him wherever he leads us. And uh, this encounter on Jacob's ladder was really an important moment in Jacob's life. Yeah, nothing would make your heart more full than knowing you're in the center of God's will. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. There, and we know that God's will is always satisfying, too. Sometimes we think, oh, I don't want to be sent as a missionary to Africa. Well, let me just say this. You, you may not want to be, but if God clearly calls you to do that, I guarantee you when you're there in Africa, you will have more fulfillment and more satisfaction being in the center of God's will there than you would be anywhere else in the world. So following God's will is always the best way to go. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, the providence of God and the how. I mean, how does the providence of God at work with Jacob, uh, just just like his father? How did that work well, out? Yeah, that 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 really the the providence of God is really the the thread, the theme that's going through all these stories from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Matter of fact, it's going through the whole story of humanity. I mean, it really is. Uh, providence is, you could define it this way, that providence are circumstances in life that are ascribable to God's intervention. In other words, it's God ordaining, creating circumstances to achieve His will. And just like the story of Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, when, when Rebekah was found to be a wife for Isaac, now, Jacob's going up to the same area. Remember how the servant of Isaac went up there, and he prayed to God and said, show me the, the girl who comes out and gives me a drink and the camels a drink. Let her be the one. He's, he's asking God to make his providence clear. And really, a, 
very similar situation pans out here where God ordains that a daughter of Laban, remember that's a sister of Rebecca, of, of Rebecca, yeah, comes out, daughter named Rachel, and she gets water for, for Jacob's, uh, whatever he had, a camel or whatever he had, gave him water, and she brings him back uh, to her father Laban. Again, who that's Jacob's uncle. And so this incredible circumstances of event traveling a long way away, and immediately when she enters, when he enters the land, he encounters who would be his future wife, Rachel. And Jacob starts to work for his uncle Laban, and he doesn't request any kind of wages to do this. His wages he asks for is Rachel, the daughter, in marriage. And so Jacob works seven years for his uncle, and after seven years, the deal would be that he'd be able to marry uh, his daughter. And this was typical back in that day. It's a dowry, you know, where the, the man, uh, the man's family would pay a large sum or something very valuable to marry uh, the family of the woman of the fam- the girl he would marry. And so this is what's taking place here. Now, the, the, the interesting thing here is Jacob was always known to be the deceiver. Uh, he had deceived you know, Esau into getting the birthright and so forth. Well, he didn't realize it was coming that he was about to be deceived by Laban in that after he had worked seven years for Rachel, lo and behold, when the marriage night comes, it's dark. There's probably a lot of feasting. The bride is veiled. It's difficult to know, see who's who's who. Um, Laban pulls a fast one on him and actually veils and gives his elder daughter Leah uh, to Jacob first because it's typical in that land not to marry off the younger daughter, Rachel, before you marry off Leah. And so Jacob is, of course, is shocked at this. The marriage has been consummated. He didn't even know it. And uh, he ends up having to work another seven years uh, to marry the younger daughter, uh, Rachel. And then you can just see the problems are going to happen there. Yeah. Uh, because now you're going to be into a bigamous situation with competing wives and all sorts of trouble. And that's all on the way in this story. Mm-hmm. David, we just have a couple of minutes left. Why, why is one man and one woman marriage always going to be God's will? Yeah. Well, you look at the story, you know, and it, it's, it's obvious, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, Jacob marries Leah. He doesn't work another seven years before he marries Rachel. He works a, It's another week, and he, he receives uh, Rachel in marriage. So now he has two wives, and he works another seven years. So he's worked 14 years for these two wives. And then eventually he ends up marrying or taking because the wives weren't, weren't uh, bearing children as they wanted to bear children. They started using the same reasoning that uh, Sarah used with Abraham and bear a child from my handmaid. And so two more wives come into the picture. So now Jacob's got four wives. <laughs> and the whole thing is just a disaster. Yeah. And it, it just goes back to the, the, the point of God from the very beginning intended marriage to be between one man and one woman. And so the, the, the amount of conflict and jealousy and problems that this family encounters uh, because of the, these decisions to marry, you know, more than one one wife, yeah. uh, is something that we should really realize today uh, in our own society, where maybe not bigamy and polygamy are, are mainstream yet, uh, but different variations of marriage are, and, yeah. and those things never honor God and they never turn out well. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Always love chatting. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, have a great rest of the day. David Wheaton's been my guest, thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with Dr. Paul Kangor. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arnold. 
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Paul Kengor back. He's a professor of political science at Grove City College and senior academic fellow of the college, the college's Center for Vision and Values. He's a recognized authority on Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, communism, conservatism, and progressivism. He's an author of over a dozen books, including A Pope and a President, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Communism, and The Devil and Karl Marx. Paul, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Bill. Good to be back. Yeah, you you just recently uh, wrote a very popular article that showed up in the National Catholic Register, and you're talking about uh, a pretty a pivotal event that happened at the Am- Amtrak station in, in Wilmington, Delaware, in 1992. Yeah, in fact, um, I guess I'm one of the few people that know about this because I'm probably one of only a few people that read the memoirs of Warren Rudman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably people. alone in that one. <laughs> you probably uh, you probably take all the people in that Amtrak station; they wouldn't <laughs> add up. Right? But, right. but yeah, so it, but, but it was it was June 29th, nineteen ninety two, and it was Wilmington, Delaware, and Joe Biden was there. Warren Rudman, uh, Warren Rudman was the liberal Republican from New Hampshire, senator. Pro-choice Republican, you know, we call him Bill. Probably, you know, like a rhino is probably what they call him today. Kind of a classic Rockefeller, Northeastern Republican type. And they, he describes this scene. I mean, picture this, where he looks down the platform and he sees Joe, as he puts it, right? Joe Biden, the, the senator from, you know, Democratic senator from Delaware, waving at him and. They're smiling and grinning, and they, they, they run. They make this dash into one another's arms, and, and they hug, and they jump up and down, and, and they laugh, and they cheer, and, and they, they, they embrace. Why? <laughs> they're, they're brought to tears. Why are and, they doing all this? I, I told you I was right about him. I told you I was and, – and the person – you imagine anybody watching this thing, what the heck is going on? But it, it, was, it was because on that date – the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision had been decided, and Justice David Souter was the swing vote to mm-hmm. make it a 5-4 decision. And this was the decision that enshrined Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. Some people thought that this decision you know, could reverse Roe, and so this was one of those pivotal decisions. And, and Justice David Souter was was up as an appointment by President George H.W. Bush, who was pro-life or said he was pro-life and, and said that he wanted a pro-life justice. And Souter's position on abortion was very kind of cryptic. No one no one really knew. He was very quiet. He was he had been up in 1990. And Warren Rudman had convinced Joe Biden, who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He said, I'm telling you, trust me, trust me. He's okay. He's okay. He's all right. And so Biden took uh, Rudman's word for it. And Biden, you know, the powerful chair of this powerful committee, who was one of the people who had borked Robert Bork, mm-hmm. you know, did what happened to Clarence Thomas. And he he shepherded through the suitor nomination by a vote of 14 to 3 out of committee. And you know, think about that, Bill. Amy Coney Barrett last week. You know, that vote, she didn't get a single Democratic vote mm-hmm. in committee. And in fact, they boycotted. They put posters in their seats. It's just just this childish display. And then when when Barrett went to the went to the full floor of the Senate, she was voted down fifty-two to forty-eight. Not a single Democrat voted for. Her. While the vote for David Souter on the Senate floor was ninety to nine. Wow. 
So yeah, and so so you know, in fact, the only one who outdid that was was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which was ninety six to three of all things. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg vote was so so they uh, Biden got it through, and that's why he and Warren Redman were so ecstatic because you know they had they had saved Roe versus Wade, they saved Roe v Wade. And and that's a moment that I've I've known about this bill for a long time. I first read about this in, in Redmond's memoirs, man, over ten years ago. And I think I last wrote about it maybe around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. And it struck me recently. I thought, boy, I need to write about that again because that's what Joe wants to do again. He wants to save Roe. He wants more David suitors, actually wants Ruth Bader Ginsburg types on the high court. And it looks like he would go so far as to even pack the court, uh, you know, add three or four new seats in order to preserve Roe versus Wade. So I wrote that and I wrote it for National Catholic Register, which is the leading Catholic publication, because, you know, Biden's Catholic, Mm -hmm. pro-choice Catholic. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to be a pro-choice Catholic. And I know that the Catholic readers will find that um, very offensive, very appalling that he did that, and people need to know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, talk about the Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Why Why was that such a significant Supreme Court, court case, maybe one of the biggest of all time? Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me about the details of the case, but but it it, it, ha- it had to do, I believe, with with a spouse a spouse consent on on abortion, and it, it, the 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 exact details of it, I I, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But 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 it, it involved a provision that would you know, in the Democrats' view and the liberals' view, would interfere with a woman's right to choose. It was it was just seen at the time as one of those landmark decisions that um, could have restricted so-called abortion rights. And the fact that it went the other way, and again, it was only 5-4. I mean, barely. Barely, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Really, really locked in Roe. And, and, I, and I can tell you this, because I remember this well. The, uh, the majority opinion was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, um, Sandra Day O'Connor, and David Souter. By the way, Bill, three Republican appointees. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Kennedy by Reagan, Sandra Day O'Connor by Reagan, the first female um, justice, Souter by Bush. All three of them thought that they they thought they were getting pro-lifers, and, and all three of them. And Kennedy wrote what is now known as the infamous mystery clause. And you know, the, the 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 mystery clause was this crazy statement by Justice Kennedy where he said that freedom in America is about the freedom to come up with your own meanings of meaning, your own definition of existence, your own definition of, of life, of the universe. It's this, it's this expansive definition of liberty, of freedom, that is absolutely in complete contradiction to what the American founders understood freedom to be. Um, and I should add here in this, this Christian station network, um, program that it, it is completely against the Judeo-Christian notion of freedom, 
Are you, we, 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 the, what's the scripture verse? I think it's Galatians 5.14 maybe. And um, my children, you, um, you, were, you, were, you were chosen for freedom, but do not use your freedom as opportunities for the flesh, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, there, you have to understand freedom properly. Freedom doesn't mean license. Freedom has responsibility. Freedom isn't about the freedom to do whatever you want. It's not about your definition to come up with your, your right to come up with your own definitions of freedom. But but that's what Kennedy wrote in this kind of, you know, sixth grade junior high definition of freedom that I, I think is I, I think it's I think it's the most embarrassing decision in American history. I think it's actually that bad. It's it's really atrocious. And it's it's fitting in a way that um it would be the opinion that would enshrine Roe v. Wade because it's a horrific opinion. That that enshrined a horrific decision from 1973. Wow. So, uh, Paul, it's messy on both sides of the aisle, isn't it, when it comes to this top, this subject? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it is indeed. And the I mean, it, what's also sad too, Bill, is that you know we're now at a point. See, that was 1992. So almost 30 years later, where. In Biden's time, there were still there is still a good number of pro-life Democrats mm-hmm. uh, in the House, in the Senate, um, but just as there, you know, there were pro-choice Republicans. Today, there's not many pro-choice Republicans. I mean, the parties are really at complete opposite poles there, and groups like the Susan B. Anthony List, Right to Life, and others they they do they do scoring on this. They count this. I believe you can count on literally one hand the number of pro-life Democrats in the House of Representatives. I mean, I'm talking like five. <laughs> I mean, once upon a time there there were hundreds, mm-hmm. and not that long ago there were there were dozens. It's it's now. I don't even think it's six. I, it might not even be five. And I don't know if there's a single pro-life Democrat in the Senate. Maybe Joe Manchin of West Virginia, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he voted against Amy Coney Barrett. Oh. So where the parties have gone on this, and 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 Joe Biden, for for for, for forty years, Joe Biden supported the Hyde Amendment, which which at the least, you know, kudos to Biden on this. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it would have prohibited taxpayer funding of abortion. You you had you had a conscientious conscientious exemption objection mm-hmm. as a person of faith. He reversed himself on that under brutal pressure, browbeating in the summer of 2019 in the Democratic primary by Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. So whereas you could have said just a couple of years ago that. Well, at least Joe Biden isn't horrible on abortion. He actually now is horrible on abortion. He's gone completely to the left. Yeah, he would be a pro-abortion extremist now, wouldn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. He 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 really would. And 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 the idea of of court packing of after everything that's happened the last thirty, forty years. I mean, the rules of the game, right? You win presidential elections. You get to appoint the judges <laughs> that you want. And, yeah, and so now you have a case with like Amy Coney Barrett added where you probably have a pro-life majority uh, on the court to have somebody suddenly come in and say, 
um, hey, we're going to add four new guys to the to the court, right? Mm-hmm. And they'd be like playing a basketball game. It's five on five, and you get to the fourth quarter, and they say, hey, time out, and then they, they send four new players out, four additional players out on the court. You, you can't do that. What are you doing? Yeah. Oh, yes, we can. Um, so it's really it's, it's 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 really outrageous, and I I think it's put a lot of Christians, a lot of pro-life Christians, in the position where they're looking at next Tuesday and they're saying, um, you know, I don't don't like Joe Biden, I don't like Donald Trump, I don't really know what I want to do, but wow, this court packing thing that that Biden and the Democrats want to do, I I think I have to vote for the other guy just to stop Biden from doing that. It's like it's like they leave you no other option. And I know kind of Christian progressives and so forth, they get upset when they hear that. But, you know, that that's not Paul Kengor's fault. That's the fault of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party for embracing this this cultural radicalism that they leave you no option but to kind of hold your nose. Vote for the other guy just to vote against them. It's it's really quite sad. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2017 they had the, the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which was to stop abortion after 20 weeks because you know, the children could feel pain at that point. And when they voted that in the House of Representatives, I think Republicans voted 234 to 2 to stop abortions after 20 weeks, and only three wow. Democrats voted to stop after 20 weeks. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's <laughs> you know, that that's the kind of horrific position that they now have, and 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 you know, another example I talk about this in in, in that article um, when Joe Biden helped save Roe v. Wade, that uh, among the people that Warren Rudman convinced on that Senate Judiciary Committee that David Souter would be okay was Joe Biden's buddy Ted Kennedy, mm-hmm. who is who was another. Uh, another um, a pro-choice Catholic who had gone left on abortion, and and this will probably surprise a lot of people listening. Um, Ted Kennedy in the mid '70s was firmly against abortion. Wow. He, yeah, he was um, in the tradition of his brothers, RFK, JFK, mm-hmm. his family. He thought it was wrong, and he he flipped basically late '80s or late '70s, early '80s. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to why people have tried to figure this out, but I, I think Bill he sold his soul on this one to to get the support of um, of, of kind of of, of, abort, of of feminists in the in the Democratic Party, especially when they were already after him because of um, of his philandering, his his reputation with women. So he, so I think that politically he went uh, pro-choice on the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he's a sign in himself. In fact, one more thing I got to note: this Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992. The Casey in that decision was was my home state's governor, Bob Casey, Bob Casey Sr. He was a Democrat, mm-hmm. you know, an old Irish Catholic Democrat, and he was really the last kind of great pro-lifer in the Democratic Party. And remember, this was a turning point. The 1992 Democratic Convention, when Hillary Clinton intervening on behalf of uh, the nominee, Bill Clinton, and and her um, pro-choice faction, they worked to, to ban and deny Casey 
a speaking platform at the at the Democratic National Convention that summer. And uh, you know, Casey complained about that bitterly until the time of his death. He said, "We're supposed to be the party of the little guy, right? Who protects the innocent? Well, we can't even protect the little guy, the unborn child in the womb. They banned him from speaking, and and the party's been on a you know hard downward slide on this issue ever since." Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Kengor is my guest, professor of political science at Grove City College. We'll take a little break. Be right back. The show, Dr. Paul Kengor is my guest, professor of political science at Grove City College. He's written a number of books. They're all fascinating. He's an authority on Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, communism, conservatism, and progressivism. He's authored well over a dozen books, including A Pope and a President, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Communism, and The Devil and Karl Marx. So, Paul, you had me thinking during the break. I was remembering when you were saying about how Ted Kennedy had evolved, uh, how interesting it is when you are uh, looking to win votes that you say things in an effort to win votes. And I, I have a feeling sometimes they're hoping, the supporters are hoping that they're not telling the truth. Like, yeah, no, like, for example, yeah. when Hillary and Obama said, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman, I think their supporters were thinking, well, I hope they're not believing that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that all fits right into this era. That was uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. I believe that was 1995. And and the vote for that in the Senate, I'd have to look it up, but I think it was at least 88 votes. So, you know, you know, literally like almost 90 percent of, of members of the Senate voted at that point in time to define marriage as between one man and one woman. In fact, I should look that up. I, I, I'm sure that Biden must have voted for DOMA for the Defense of Marriage Act. And, and it was supported by Bill Clinton, by Hillary Clinton. And um, you, you noted that I've written books. I wrote a book called God and Hillary Clinton. It <laughs> surprises a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I had a whole chapter on her position on a mar- on on marriage bill, and people were surprised by that. I remember when I was doing the promotion for the book. When did that come out? Two thousand six, two thousand seven, and she was running for president in two thousand eight uh, against Obama. And I remember telling conservatives, especially talk show hosts, who interviewed me, I said, "Well, here's something about Hillary that will surprise you. She calls herself an old-fashioned Methodist." And she is pretty old-fashioned on things like marriage. And I quoted her, and she said, she said things like, you know, I, I'm sorry to say this to my progressive friends, but, you know, I just believe that, that marriage was ordained by God as between man, one man and one woman. <laughs> and at some point, either God changed his mind or Hillary changed, changed her mind, Bill. Um, and actually, I could tell you when that was. That was in 2012, and it was – I think it was in May of 2012 – when Barack Obama flipped on same-sex marriage in that famous interview he did with Robin Roberts. Mm-hmm. And, and then Hillary flipped quite literally days after the November 2012 election, when, when it was clear that she was going to be pursuing the party's nomination in, in 2016. So either she flipped because she had a change of heart or she flipped because she thought, here's where my party is now. And I'm going to have to flip my position on this. And you know, I, I find that quite egregious that, that people would so betray basic religious principles like that. And you know, maybe they think on an issue like marriage, which doesn't involve you know, life and death, you know, it's still a very serious moral issue. They can get away with that. 
But if you do this on abortion, I mean, if you if you flip your position from pro-life to pro-choice, not because you've changed your mind, but strictly for political expediency to get a party nomination, mm-hmm. I think that's hideous. I mean, I've got a copy right here at my desk of Dante's Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. If you, if you, yeah, I was reading Canto 23, The Hypocrites, where Caiaphas is crucified to the floor of hell in, <laughs> in, the, in this book. I, if Dante were, were to come back in the 21st century, I think there might be a special circle for, for politicians who change their position on abortion strictly in order to get votes, mm-hmm. you know, not, not, not because they've changed their mind, or, or they, you know, but, but strictly to get votes. And, and Paul, isn't it safe? Pretty safe to say that power grabs uh, will always in, that they'll always involve changes in positions, you know, on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, well, I think so. I, I mean, I would have to, um, yeah, to be fair about that, I have to give some examples with with conservatives doing the same. Um, I, I'd have to think about that a little bit longer. But I, but I, as I think on the abortion issue. It looks like Donald Trump um, changed his mind to become pro-life. Yeah. Uh, on the abortion, and I, I'm, I must say, look, I voted against him in 2016. I, I didn't vote for him, and I didn't vote for Hillary. I, did, I penciled in somebody, and I remember telling my pro-life friends, I said, "Come on, you guys, Trump is a New York liberal. I mean, this guy is not pro-life." And I've spent four years now watching this very carefully, and. He he's been arguably the the, the best pro life president that we've ever had, include, including with judicial appointments. And I and I have friends, and including here at Grove City College where I teach, who, who say, "Come on, he doesn't believe it. He's doing it just for votes." I I I don't look. I've I've watched every pro life speech he's given, including at the March for Life. If he doesn't believe this bill, he's a heck of a liar. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I, I think at this point, um, look at his totality of actions and statements and the kind of things that he said. I think he's evolved into being pro-life. I, I, I just the, the, the preponderance of the, the weight of evidence just seems overwhelming. Um, maybe I'm being duped here. I, 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 I don't know, but. But at least his actions are are extraordinarily pro-life. Mm-hmm. Paul, what's your gut feeling on the the future of the Supreme Court? Do you think it'll remain at nine, or do you think that's going to change? In- if I, I I I can't believe I'm having this conversation, but if if Biden wins, I don't know. I don't know, Bill. I think they'll add three or four seats. And and what you know, he didn't completely deny it. He didn't didn't completely endorse it. And just looking, people listening, go to the internet and just start googling. In the last two or three days, uh, people from Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to Ed Markey of of Massachusetts, who's a very serious individual, uh, have have endorsed this. I I, I think they're going full blown. I think if they win, they're going to do it. I, I really do. And and people could say, well, why would they do that? Then if the Republicans get in, they could do the same thing. Republicans are really principled on this stuff. Uh, you know, they, they don't do what Democrats do with court appointments. Again, they voted in RBG 96 to 3. So, um, I mean, you would think that, that they, would, they would say, well, if we do this, a Republican president could come in and then add three or four seats. 
and then pretty soon we could be up to close to 20. And then we add another four, and then they add another four, and who knows, this would be like an arms race. Who knows when it would stop? And Ruth Bader Ginsburg even said the number should stay at nine. But here they are all over the place right now, Bill, and they're saying that they're, they're going to add three or four seats. So so for me, I, I, I mean, I just I, – I feel like um, – yeah, I, I've got I've got a vote to stop that. <laughs> mm. I feel a moral imperative to, to to vote against them just just to stop that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, Paul, maybe we can uh, chat again after the election. It'd be kind of uh, fun to reconnect with you again in a week or so. Would you be willing to come back on? I'd be happy to. Good, good. Yeah, I will, got it. I will call you then. Thank you so much for taking the time today, and I look forward to chatting with you again in a week or so. All right, Bill. Take care. You bet. Dr. Paul Kengor has been my guest, and he uh, is an author. Head over to uh, Amazon. Check out his books. He's got many. uh, I've read a couple of them, and they're phenomenal. All right. Coming up next, we're going to continue our prayer series. Prayer series number two is just ahead. I know uh, if you're like me, you're loving this prayer series. And Dr. Peter Kapsher and myself will be hosting Dr. David Clark today. That's all ahead next on Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.